Father, we do thank you that because of your power, your strength, not ours, we will persevere to the end. Give us the desire to follow through on these truths. Give us the desire to listen to you and follow you all the days of our lives. Father, you are great and greatly to be praised. We pray that we would do this from the bottom of our hearts, not in a shallow way like we will see the crowds doing even in the triumphal entry of your Son, Christ. Bless us now as we study your word. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Now, as always, we are blessed here to study the Word of God today. Will you please open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 21? Matthew 21. Matthew 21, we have the story of the triumphal entry of Christ. This passage should be somewhat familiar to us, not just in studying this, but in remembering a couple of years ago on Palm Sunday, I did indeed preach Mark's account of the triumphal or triumphant entry of Christ. And what we discovered a couple of years ago is that this triumphant entry was indeed triumphant, and it was indeed the coronation of Christ as king over the people of Israel, Christ as really the spiritual king, Christ as the king that was promised all throughout the Old Testament. But we also find, found out that the entry of Christ into Jerusalem that day was also tragic. Because of all the people there singing and shouting and praising and even using some of the biblical language about Christ within just a few days would have rejected Him. And so this triumphant entry is also tragic. It is a sad testimony to the fickleness of man. Well, let me read this passage to you, the triumphal entry, beginning in verse 1 of Matthew 21. I'll go down to verse 11. Follow along as I read aloud. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied, a colt tied with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and He will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, a colt, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them, and they brought the donkey and the colt and put them on their cloaks, put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them, them being the cloaks, not both of the donkeys. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches on the trees and spread them on the road, and the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered, 
Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowds said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. May God bless the reading of His Word. Some of you are familiar with the story of the great cantata, the greatest probably oratorio of all time, Handel's Messiah. And for those of you who don't remember the story of it, here's just a little bit of it. George Frederick Handel was probably the most famous musician of his time. He had written a number of uh, symphonies and orchestras and cantatas or oratorios and uh, was widely accepted, again, probably the most famous musician of his time. People loved him, but as life went on, his time began to fade. He grew less and less in popularity. What he produced did not, was not esteemed as current, was not esteemed as popular anymore. The things he was putting out didn't seem to grab a lot of attention. The crowds began to disperse and not attend his oratorios much anymore. On top of that, as he grew older, he saw, as many of us do as we grow older, some tragedy in his family. Well, it was in the midst of this tragedy and just sort of loss of popularity and loss of sort of his way in life that a friend of his wrote some Scripture passages down on a scrap of paper, and at the top of it, he wrote from Isaiah 40, uh, Isaiah 40 Comfort ye my people. And he read that, was encouraged, and he was especially encouraged by that phrase, comfort ye my people. And he sat down, and with his friend who'd written that, they sat down, and over a period of a couple of days, not sleeping at all, they together wrote the most famous oratorio of all time, Handel's Messiah. Well, he wrote this, and it grew in popularity almost immediately. There was a premiere in Dublin, Ireland, and then later on in London. And it was when he was in London, just a few weeks after premiering this oratorio, that King George was there. You know the story. As the oratorio went on and as they sang, it built and built, singing these themes of Jesus the Messiah, all of it, by the way, coming from the King James. They used the entire text came from the King James Bible. That was the Bible the English used that, that day. As it grew and grew and grew in, in greatness, it comes to that climax, the Hallelujah Chorus. And as the Hallelujah Chorus began to be played, King George stood up, and of course nobody in the room could remain seated while the king was standing, so everybody stood up. So now for 300 years, every time this oratorio is played, or even just the song, the Hallelujah Chorus, is played, the congregation, the audience, stands up. And most of us know some of the words, maybe we sing along, it's the most beautiful, exhilarating, probably chorus, probably the most beautiful, exhilarating chorus of all time, the Hallelujah chorus. I don't need to tell you this, but over the last 300 years, every time that's played, when everyone stands, probably most of the people standing are not Christians. This has been played in many secular venues throughout the centuries, and, and people appreciate it far and wide just for its musical beauty, just for its, its climactic sense that you get to this point of the Hallelujah Chorus and, and the truth of who the Messiah is, even the story of Jesus, even the story of, of Handel and his friend putting this together. People stand up in awe, they're amazed, they're swept up in the, in the joy and the beauty of, of what's happening, and they stand up as been, has been done for 300 years. Well, I liken what happened there 
What happens in the, in the Hallelujah Chorus, what happened there to Jesus on the triumphal entry? I, I would imagine that most people did not understand. In fact, we know most people did not understand what happened and what was happening that day. I think we are supposed to, as we read this, this is the beginning of the week of Jesus' passion, I think we're supposed to think of this triumphal entry in juxtaposition or compared to what would happen just a few days later. Most scholars, as they do the math on Palm Sunday, it really wasn't Palm Sunday, it was Palm Monday. If you just do the math on the days there, if Jesus was arrested on a Thursday evening and killed on Friday, if you just back away from that, this happened on Monday. So between Monday and Thursday, the crowd had completely turned against him. Now, again, we don't know exactly who all was in the crowd. There's not anybody taking attendance and knowing exactly who was shouting in that crowd, praise to Jesus, and then later on shouting, crucify him. We don't know that any of them were there. But that theme Matthew gives us of the crowd, oklos is the word, the crowd. The crowd did this. The crowd was praising him on Monday, and the crowd on Thursday and Friday were screaming, crucify him, crucify him. And we have this beautiful story of all this this Scripture being fulfilled as He comes into Jerusalem in accordance to what what Matthew quotes here, Zechariah 9.9, the Christ coming in and humility, people crying out and glorifying God, glorifying Christ, saying some of the same words that the men who we looked at last time, who were saved, the blind men, saying some of the same words, and yet they did not follow Jesus. They walked away unchanged, completely unmoved by the truth of Jesus Christ. Well, I want to do what we did last week is just walk through the story very briefly and then make a couple of points of application. Just walk through this story with me, if you will. It says in verse 1, they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage to the Mount of Olives. Now, just stop right there. Uh, Just to give you a little more geography, if you remember the last couple of weeks, Jericho is east of Jerusalem, down many mountains. And so you would go up perhaps 3,000 feet, 3,500 feet, and you would go all the way up through some mountains, about 15 or 20 miles, you would go up all the way up to Jerusalem. Before you got to the old city of Jerusalem, Jerusalem proper, where there was a wall, before you got to that wall, you would ascend the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives is sitting higher than Jerusalem. You would come up the backside of the Mount of Olives. And upon the backside of the Mount of Olives is a region known as Bethphage. And in that region, there's a little village, really it would be a neighborhood called Bethany. So sometimes you read in the Gospels, it says Jesus came to Bethany. Sometimes you read he was in Bethphage. Bethphage is more the area of town. Bethany is the neighborhood. And I say, of town, what town? Well, it's the town of Jerusalem. This is a suburb of the city of Jerusalem. Just to give you something in your mind's eye, it's about as far away as Punchbowl is to downtown Honolulu. You're just looking over it. It's less than a mile. If you're standing on the uh, the Mount of Olives, you're less than a mile to the old city of Jerusalem. So everything surrounding that area would be considered sort of greater Jerusalem, the metropolis of Jerusalem. Again, sometimes you'll read in the Bible, as Jesus came into Jerusalem, you even see it here, as Jesus comes into Jerusalem, this is not talking about the old city of Jerusalem, Jerusalem proper, but the region of Jerusalem, the the metropolis of Jerusalem, which would include this area of Bethphage, the village of Bethany. 
The village of Bethany should be somewhat familiar to you. The village of Bethany, of course, is where Jesus healed Lazarus. He had a number of friends there. People knew him there in Bethany. People understood who Jesus was. They had heard of his reputation. And again, had he been known in that area for doing many things, he would have been known for that one thing of healing Lazarus, of raising Lazarus from the dead. I think most people in Bethany would have understood that Lazarus was in the grave dead. And Jesus said, come forth, and with those words, breathed life into him, and Lazarus came out of the grave. So Jesus' reputation was established. He had friends there, and Jesus was coming to that region, most likely to stay there during the week of Passover. And this would have been expected. I think this would have been somewhat normal. I think people would have understood. He knows people there. He has friends there. He's coming like so many people are. He's coming to Jerusalem for the week of Passover. That's what Jesus is doing. Speaking of Passover, again, this would have been the biggest celebration on the Jewish calendar. Passover for the Jews was bigger to them than Christmas is for us. It was massive. They had songs. They had praise songs. They had worship songs. They had friends and family. By the way, just to give you an idea of how big Jerusalem got, they would come to Jerusalem in that day to let you know how big Jerusalem would get. Jerusalem was about 300,000 people normally. And we don't know. There was no accounting. There's no specific attendance, again, a population count during that time. But we do know about 10 years later, after Jesus was there, we do know how many lambs were crucified. It was 260,000 lambs, say crucified, were slaughtered, were, were sacrificed. 260,000 lambs were slaughtered. Now, it was one lamb, the rule was, the law was, one lamb for every 10 people. So it, Jerusalem, or the surrounding area of Jerusalem, grew from about 300,000 to about 2.6 million people. By the way, this would rival Rome. And you can imagine why people like Pontius Pilate, Roman people, would be a little bit afraid of the Jews because they had this thing every year where three million people almost would gather in one place at one time. And you can imagine how, how even Pontius Pilate, we'll get to him later on, how he would be walking on eggshells, a little worried about some sort of insurrection, some sort of rise up because that many Jews all in one place would have scared him. Now, all these people were flooding in to observe Passover Passover, of course, you guys are learning about this in the pastor's class. Passover, of course, is the celebration that marks their freedom from the people of Egypt, the slavery in Egypt. And there was a series of things that they would do, all of them very uh, Christocentric, really pointing to Christ, pointing what Christ would do, pointing to salvation, pointing to something that God would provide. God had chosen the people of Israel. He, he was saving them out of Egypt. Of course, the main thing that we would know about that time is that sacrificial lamb. That lamb, of course, was taken by each family. Again, about 10 people, they would have a lamb. They would take this lamb and they would choose that lamb. By the way, they would choose that lamb on Monday, Monday, the week of Passover. They would choose that lamb and they would take that lamb into their family. They would slaughter that lamb. They would eat the lamb, but they would also put the blood of the lamb over their doorpost. This is all part of Passover. Little did they know that this would all be fulfilled in Jesus Christ. But they're all there to celebrate Passover. They're all there to have the Seder dinner, to do this, to walk through this process, to remember that God has not forgotten the people of Israel and He will free them from their sin. Interesting, those of you who are studying 
that pastor's class, something you're going to notice is the, the plagues did not affect the people of Israel except for this last plague. The last plague, had they not gone through the Passover dinner, would have killed them. They would have died. There would have been death. They would have been just as affected, really telling us that they're just as guilty as any human being. Jewish people, they're chosen by God, but they were not any better than any other human. They needed the atonement. They needed the blood atonement, the covering of the Lamb. Well, this is what Jesus is coming into Jerusalem to do. He's coming to celebrate Passover, only He's coming not just to celebrate it, but to fulfill it, to bring it to its completion. All these people are gathering in. One of the things you need to know, one of the things that they would do as they gathered in, like I said earlier, is they would sing songs. One song, a Hillel song, that they would sing as they gathered and came up to Jerusalem was a song that would repeat the phrase, save now, save now. What is save now? Well, in the Hebrew, it's Hosanna or Hosanna. And they would be singing this song. This is like a a Christmas carol for us. This is a, a familiar song they would sing at this season every year, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. People are shouting Hosanna, they're singing, there's, there's actually on the streets they would be singing, much like we would think of Christmas caroling, they would go around and, and sing with people and sing with one another and shout and praise God, Hosanna in the highest. Another thing that the people would do is when they saw their family afar off, there was another little ditty that they would sing and it would be, go something like this, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So they would be singing these things. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now this is the thing that the people are doing as Jesus begins to arrive. It says, Jesus sent two of his disciples saying to them, go into the village in front of you. We assume this is Bethany. And immediately you'll find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. Interesting to note right here, Matthew's the only one that includes the fact that this was so young a foal that the donkey's mother had to be with her to keep her calm. Now, the rest of them just talk about the young donkey. This is, Matthew gives us a little more, I, I think, of the humility of Christ. This is such a young, perhaps even unbroken colt that the mother needed to be there with her, with the, the baby donkey, so that uh, it would not uh, freak out as Jesus came into the village. Go into the village in front of you, immediately you'll find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them, bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them, and He will send them at once. Now, just pause right there. There's some people that speculate here this is a, a peek into the deity of Christ, that de- Jesus knows He's under control, perhaps even the, not just the omniscience, but the, but the om, om, uh, omnipotence of Christ, that He has enough power to control the donkey and to control the owner and all this stuff is, is all under His strength. And, and perhaps that's true. I, I do not deny the deity of Christ at all. I affirm it. I've preached it many times from this pulpit. I do think something a little more mundane happened here. And you can disagree with me. I'm not going to go to the stake uh, for this. Uh, I think something just normal happened. I think perhaps this guy knew Jesus. Maybe the owner of the cult understood what was happening. Maybe he, Jesus had told him. He had been to Bethany many times. People knew him there. Perhaps it was even with people they knew. It's just not mentioned because it's not that important who it was or where it was. Just go to that place. There's going to be a donkey. I need that donkey. 
and they'll send it. Just say, the Lord needs it. And perhaps that man exa knew exactly who the Lord was. It was Jesus. And Jesus, again, by many of his followers, including we saw the blind man earlier, call him, called him Lord. One of Paul's favorite terms for Jesus is Lord. The Lord needs them. So I think something mundane here is that's not to say that Jesus isn't God. Uh, it's just to say I think something more mundane happened here. They went in. They got the donkey and its mother. They brought it to Jesus. Matthew adds, he loves to do this. Again, his primary audience, though not his only audience, his primary audience being Jew Jewish, he points this out. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. You have to know a little bit about what was happening in Zechariah's prophecy right before Zechariah mentions this and talks about your king is coming. He is telling the people of Israel that uh, there will be a king, a secular king, a godless king, a pagan king that will rise up. And this king will, in essence, unify all that part of the world. And this king will ride on a steed, and this king will have a silver sword, and this king will dominate and create power, and eventually he will create a level of peace. Most scholars agree that that king was Alexander the Great. He talks about the power and the authority and really the pride and glory of this particular king. This king will come, he will, great, he will be great, he will unify, and we know that that's what Alexander did. He, he began to unify that part of the world and began to Hellenize, if you know anything about Hellenization. He's the one that, that made sure that people all over that region of the world would speak Greek. And he unified that, that world. Eventually, that would evolve into the Roman Empire who would capitalize on that unity and that peace. But he contrasts that brilliant, prideful king who comes in with a silver sword on a steed with all his pomp and circumstance with a humble king. Again, look at verse 5, quoting from Zechariah 9.9, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal. It's very specific. It's not just the, the older donkey. It's the foal. It's the young one. It's the colt of a beast of burden. There's so much humility here. He doesn't even choose the older, more experienced, more pronounced donkey. It's the one. It's the humblest beast that a human can ride upon. That's who your humble king is coming in as. Verse 6, the disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him, so there's sort of a a herald here. There are people in front of him, people behind him, and they were heralding as though he's a king on this colt. Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, again, I don't believe he entered the old city of Jerusalem, but just came into the city, that suburb of Jerusalem, as he entered that part of Jerusalem, 
the Bethany part of Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred, saying, who is this? The crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. So we have this beautiful story of Jesus. It's really the crowning of a king. It's His coronation, so to speak. Jesus is being recognized. He's being identified as the king, the king of Israel. The people even shout exactly what the, the blind men shouted last time, son of David. There seems to be some sort of recognition here that this Jesus is fulfilling the great prophecies of old. He's fulfilling the Davidic covenant. He's, he is the Messiah. There's some, there's some recognition of this. And we'll realize that it stops short of going to their hearts. It stays on their lips and never goes down into their hearts. We see this because verse 11, after the people are asking who this is, the crowds say this is the prophet Jesus. They don't say this is the Messiah. They don't even say this is the King of Israel. They recognize what so many lost people recognize throughout history. Jesus is a really good man. He's a great guy. Maybe even has some powers, got some great teachings, some good morals. We'll call him a prophet. This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Well, this brings me to our first point of application, the fickleness of the crowd. I looked all around. I tried to find a better word than fickleness, but this is the word that describes them. Out of one side of their mouth, they're praising Jesus. Out of one side of their mouth, they're saying the very things that saved people say. But in the end, they don't really profess Christ. They don't really follow Christ. They don't really love Christ. If you just look at this context, going back up to the blind men and even looking at the apostles, the ones who were true outside of Judas, of course, you realize there is a dramatic difference between true disciples and the crowd. True disciples mean and understand what they say when they praise Jesus. When the men were saying, the blind men were saying, Son of David, I, I, I believe they actually understood that means He's the Messiah. Why? Because they followed Him. That's another thing that true disciples do that finicky crowds don't do. They don't follow Jesus. Ladies and gentlemen, I hate to break it to you, but there are thousands, if not millions of people in church this very morning singing songs, and they do not follow Christ at all. Oh, they get emotional. They feel good. The songs are moving and encouraging. They sing songs much like this, maybe even songs full of Scripture. And they make no effort in their life to follow after Christ. So that's another thing that these true disciples did that this finicky crowd did not. They're finicky. As soon as it became obvious that following Jesus would involve pain or perhaps even death, they flipped. And that's what people do every week. They, they come to church, they praise. Maybe even some of you are here in this very room. You're, you're not a true disciple. You come, you praise, you're moved, you like the church, you're swept up by the joy and the, and the teaching and whatever, and you, you like all this, but then you are unchanged. Nothing has changed your heart. Nothing has 
truly changed you. You're not following after Christ. You're not a true disciple. What you say about Christ, oh, you may believe it intellectually, but it is not something that is true of your heart. Your life, we talked about this last week, but your life is not fashioned by Jesus Christ. It's not a display of following and becoming like Jesus Christ. Now, these crowds, they were fickle. They do what's expedient for them, but bring them joy there for the moment, what brought them some sort of happiness at that moment, what excited them. They're all swept up by the moment, and they're praising and shouting and saying the words they're supposed to say. And when it, when it came time to take up their cross and follow Jesus, they did not do it. Is that true of you? Is that real for you? You're, you're like a crowd. You say all the right things. Maybe even intellectually you affirm all the right things, but when it comes to actually following Jesus, you're nowhere to be found. You flip easily from Sunday to Monday. You're a different person. Take on a different persona. Act different, live different, love different than you do any other day of the week. This is what Jesus calls over and over hypocrisy. Now, the truth is, all of us, in some extent, to some extent, are hypocrites. That by God's grace, we're trying not to be. By God's grace, we're forgiven of our hypocrisy. By God's grace, we rely on His mercy. We rely on His grace. And friend, if you're one of those who, down in your heart, you know you're not a true disciple, down in your heart, you realize this today, the good news is, is you can repent of that sin, follow after Christ, become a true disciple. The second point of application I want us to see is the humbleness of the Christ. Behold, your king is coming to you, it says in verse 5, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. This gets us back to what we talked about a couple of weeks ago as Jesus taught His disciples the way of the cross in this era of time, where we are now. It is not about dominion. It is not about power. We've studied this many times. The people of Israel of that first century, they, they took out all the hard stuff about the Messiah and just looked on the, the domineering, dominating stuff. They, they found the things that they liked about the Messiah, and they sort of clung to those and ignored the hard things about the Messiah, like the suffering servant we see in Isaiah. And they looked at all the stuff they wanted. They wanted an Israel that dominated the earth. They wanted to be freed from the, the oppression. They wanted food. Most people throughout most of history are looking simply to survive. They're looking for food. They're looking for healing of disease. And so really, they loved Jesus until there was humility involved. They loved Jesus until they found out that they had to take up their cross. They love Jesus until they find out that, that maybe in this era they're going to die of disease and, and not be healed. And then they just wave the white flag and say, oh, I'm done with this guy. The Messiah that I want gives me what I want. No, Jesus is a king who comes first as a humble king, mounted on a donkey, a king that would be slaughtered for our sake, a king that sought to serve, not to be served. A king who would give his life as a ransom for many. You know, it's Jesus who 
brings up this idea. It's all over Scripture, but he brings up this idea in terms of salvation, the idea that God gives grace to the humble. But in James' words, he stiff arms the proud. He rejects the proud. Why? Because you don't come to him. You don't come after a humble Savior pronouncing how strong you are or what you've accomplished. You come to him in humility, in brokenness, seeking to follow the humble Savior. This is the beginning of salvation for you, isn't it? It's humility. It's realizing the humility of the cross. It's realizing the shame of the cross and identifying with that and saying, that is what I ingest. That is what I uh, appropriate to my own heart, the humility of the cross. I come broken, realizing I, I am nothing. I come to Him naked in, ter- in spiritual terms. I come to Him with nothing, no royal robes, no accomplishments, nothing to say, uh, speak of my status or my credentials. I come to Him humble. He is a humble king and has humbly given His life for me. And so I come to Him humbly, seeking His grace. That doesn't mean that Jesus is some sort of feminine, effeminate Savior who just is a big pushover. No, one day He will come with a sword. One day He will come on a steed. One day He will come and rule and reign and judge. But the way you come to Him in this era is you come to Him humbly, following after Him. Well, the lesson, I believe, is pretty clear. Don't be like the fickle crowd. Follow after the humble Savior. I think these are the things we're supposed to notice. We're supposed to notice the, the fickleness of this crowd. We're supposed to know the humility of Jesus Christ, the way He comes with tender care providing salvation. Well, let's pray that God would give us the humility and the grace to not be like the crowd and to follow after Jesus. Father, we know that there are those here who don't know You. We pray that You would give them the grace and peace to know You. We pray that the gospel truth would come to their hearts and teach them righteousness, the righteousness that would save them, the righteousness that is inspired by Your Spirit. For the first time in their lives, Lord, speak to their hearts. Grant them a desire to humbly come to the Savior, to turn from their sin, and to follow after Jesus, no matter what it costs. Lord, may we be like Jesus. May we see our Savior, who in this era comes on a young donkey to a village outside of Jerusalem, in the midst of a bunch of Hypocritical, hypocritical praise to give His life for those very people, to give His life for all who would believe in Him. And so, Lord, we proclaim our belief in Christ. We thank You that You would even give us the grace to understand and believe in Him. We pray that our faith, our belief in Him would grow stronger. We pray even today as we see, see the humbleness of our Savior, Lord, You would bless us as we seek to follow after Him and deny ourselves. Help us in this, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's stand for a benediction.
Now may we go humbled, following our humble king who rode into Jerusalem, mounted on the colt, the foal of a donkey. And may we rejoice in him forevermore.